morning everybody and thank you for joining us this morning. During this time of social and physical distancing, SACPA believes it's important to keep engaging with the public on issues of the day and in order to do so, we are very thankful for the continuing support we receive from the University of Lethbridge, Shaw Spotlight and the Lethbridge Herald. Today our speaker is Dr. Michael Unger on the topic of resilience during a pandemic, from Zoom calls to dealing with the economic crisis, strategies for surviving and thriving. Dr. Unger is a family therapist and professor of social work at Dalhousie University, where he holds the Canada Research Chair in Child, Family and Community Resilience and is the Scientific Director, Children and Youth Refugee Research Coalition. Over the past 20 years, Dr. Unger has done hundreds of interviews for radio, television, podcasts, magazines and newspapers, and delivered over 500 keynote addresses all around the world on the topic of resilience. He is among the best known and best-selling author in the field with 200 peer-reviewed papers and 16 books. His latest work is Change Your World, The Science of Resilience and the True Path to Success. Thank you very much for joining us today, and we look forward to your talk. <laughs> thank you. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, it's, a, it's a real pleasure, and nice to join you all in, uh, in uh, southern Alberta from uh, here in Halifax, where I'm, uh, where I'm based. Um, this whole topic of resilience has a lots of different meanings, and especially now during this pandemic and with everything else going on, um, I know that people are getting sort of worn down. But what I'd like to do is I'd like to sort of offer you this notion that, well, resilience is very much possible. And there are many things that we can do, both in terms of our own individual qualities, but also shaping the world around us to make it possible for us to be much, much better able to cope with this kind of stress. Um, could I ad advance to the next uh, slide? One of the interesting things is, you know, we have, we have an, a, an amazing capacity to be flexible which is really a sign of resilience. And I just want to give you an example here. During this pandemic, of course, it's very difficult during all the social distancing to have birthday parties and everything else. And I watched as a neighbor of mine, a good friend, um, held his uh, one of his uh, big birthdays. And what we all did as a community was we had a drive-by birthday. So I just want to show you a little bit of what this adaptation in a time of pandemic looks like when you want to hold a birthday party. Can I just have you run that for a second? So, I mean, it's a funny little example. I'm sure that you folks are doing other similar initiatives. But what I want to get at here is, and why I want to show you that, is that, that the notion of our personal resilience, especially during a time of crisis like this, is not entirely just within our own heads. In fact, what we understand about resilience is, is also about the environments around us and whether or not those environments bring out our best and boldest selves. So what we understand about resilience is that being a rugged individual makes a lot of sense in terms of having a lot of sort of personal grit and capacity to cope. That's a good set of qualities to have when problems are relatively few. But as our problems 
increase in number and you get a lot of different challenges as we're experiencing medical challenges family challenges social isolation economic worries if you're a business owner etc etc what you actually see is our need not just for a positive mindset but also for the resources that we have available to support us and that is everything from simply having uh, a network of friends and families to drive by your driveway during your during a birthday party right up to government social policies and interventions to make sure that that uh, our economy somehow sustains this incredibly stressful period. Um, now, during normal times, of course, what you see is that we have the resources we need to cope. But what happens during a pandemic, of course, is that, well, not only do we do we sort of increase all the incredible stressors in our lives. Now we have economic worries, social isolation worries, loneliness worries, medical worries. But on the other side of the coin, almost on a teeter-totter-like thinking, we also have stripped away many of the natural supports, the things that we would get. We would have places to go, places to decompress, places to talk to people. We would have all those opportunities to deal with this increased stress load. And this is what's making us so um, vulnerable at this particular time. So the trick here is you can do two things during a period like this. On the one hand, you can try and decrease your stress exposure. In other words, you can try and you know, you know, uh, 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 you know, make sure you have economic well-being. You can you know refinance your mortgage or whatever it's going to take to you know. You can try and you know take advantage of government programs or whatever it's going to take to sort of cushion the stressors that are actually uh, burdening you. But the other side is that you need to sort of stack the deck with resources. You need to get, you know, more supports. You need to find flexible ways of actually getting the things that you particularly need. Now, when I look at resilience, what we're doing is we've been developing a, uh, an approach called R2 for being rugged and being resourced. And the idea here is that what we're trying to do is we're trying to create a, 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 an equal partnership on those two sets of qualities. Herbert Hoover, back in 1928, made that epic statement about the you know the rugged individual referring to that that epic time in the United States during the the um, the roaring 20s when individual pursuit and grit made such a difference uh, of course what was interesting of course was just three four years a few years later you see an, uh, a country that doesn't really emphasize individual grit as much as it does of course social programs and the ability to sort of bring people through a particularly incredibly harsh crisis not unlike what we're experiencing now. But the trick with our, our qualities that are individual and the qualities that are sort of outside of us is that they have to work together. I'll give you a few examples. If, if, if we want our kids to eat healthy, it's not a matter of getting them to psychologically think that I gotta eat healthy. What we actually know is that if you schedule dinners with your children three times a week, children will report better food intake uh, 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 better health outcomes, more social connections to their families, et cetera, et cetera. So a whole bunch of things happen because they, we've literally structured the environment around our children. And the same thing could be here. We might want to talk about the fact that if we're working at home and we've sent everyone back into their home environments to, you know, because we're dealing with these endless Zoom calls and everything else, then what we're going to also need is this um, ability to sort of not just going to, it's going to wear on us. It is going to wear on us psychologically. It is wearing on us. We're seeing a spike in our feelings of anxiety, uh, depression, our sense of loneliness, disconnection. So we have to compensate for that by actually 
uh, finding some way to also socially engage with others. I mean, I'm doing so many of these friggin' Zoom calls. At some point, you got to admit that you're just fed up with it, right? But I, the part I'm actually missing, and I keep thinking what I want to do in my Zoom calls is just schedule a Zoom call so that that we don't talk about work. We just do what we used to do over lunches and dinners when I would travel to another group of people. Wouldn't it be nice just to schedule a Zoom call with your colleagues and say, just let's just talk about our kids for an hour, just like we used to do around the sort of the, you know, the over our lunch hours or whenever it was that we used to connect. And my, my point of that, as silly as that sounds, and we're not going to do it, but as silly as that sounds, what we're understanding is that we survive better when we have these powerful social connections, when we have this, this interaction between what we need internally and a rewarding environment that gives us some of those things. And our trick to become resilient is not just to frankly meditate. The trick is to be, you know, if you are going to develop some of those personal reflective practices, that's great. But you also got to get the supports around you. So you're going to actually have to ask your spouses for some time out to go away you know, if that's how you re-energize, it's not enough to say, okay, I just need to take three deep breaths and deal with my obnoxious children who are driving me crazy. It's also going to be about, and I have five, by the way, it's also going to be about um, us turning to the supports that we have as best we possibly can to allow us the time out that we need to re- to, 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 to sort of build up our resources again. Um, this, this idea, by the way, has been something that I've been working on with projects all over the world. And in fact, even in Alberta, one of our largest research projects it involves uh, uh, com- uh, the community of Drayton Valley and another community in South Africa. And we're actually looking at, say, for instance, when communities go through uh, like oil and gas dependent, where they're really you know, focused on a resource extraction industry like oil and gas, how do young people deal with that sort of economic boom and bust cycles? And very clearly, by the way, you can see that as economic booms and busts occur, you can see trends in terms of everything from the way people build their houses to, of course, job opportunities to the way families experience social cohesion. And the weird thing about our research is showing that actually, while everyone thinks that the boom times are best, the bust times are actually sometimes better for families. And that's kind of counterintuitive because we're always thinking, well, you know, we have more money, we have more jobs, we have more everything. But actually, it has a terrible strain. That's what our research, we're working with over 500 young people in uh, Drayton Valley. And we're hearing consistently, not that people want the bus times, but what they do understand is that there's, there's a dynamic between our environment and what's individually and coping. And that an external stressor, like an economic stress, can actually wear on us and our families. And so the solution becomes not just simply, well, securing a good economy, the solution also has to be thinking about other factors that make us resilient, and that is things like maintaining connections to our family, maintaining connections to our community. I was, I was, I've been very impressed by Drayton Valley, some of the town council initiatives that have really been looking at how to stabilize the community through those economic swings, um, trying to make it a family-friendly environment for people, trying to create a, and attract more businesses or diversify the economy ever so slightly so that there's a more of a, an ability to withstand those booms. Now, in a sense, I'm using terms like flexibility, diversification of the economy, family cohesion, uh, creating sort of recreational spaces, uh, giving a sense of community belonging. I'm talking about all these things that are almost external to the individual. But what we know is that those things, when we see them, 
actually produce better mental health as well. Now, when we actually in this in this kind of rugged and resource talking about resilience, I want to sort of be be be, be sort of a little more specific. There are some things that actually can be really good for you during a time of this kind of pandemic, right? Um, and some of them are more internal and some of them are external. So for instance, um, gratitude. We know that there's a fairly robust research on that people who say spend just a little bit of time each day, usually at the end of the day, and reflect on that what went right today. And that could be journaling it, it could just be simply taking a few deep breaths and appreciating it. And that notion of saying, I refocusing our, our, our minds on something that actually went well can actually almost add like ink, uh, like a colored ink to water. It, it kind of permeates out through your life. In the same way, by the way, um, uh, having an optimistic perspective on the future, uh, maintaining a sense that the future is, is possible, that things are going to get better. I know it's easy to get inundated by the news and see it all as doom and gloom and watch the stock market if, you're, if you've got investments and you're nearing retirement or something and you know everything seems just that tension. But we also know that people who are more optimistic tend to be better at getting information. They tend to have better social networks, by the way, as well. They tend to take advantage of making relationships with others. They tend to be able to fight back anxiety and depression as well. One of the funny things about optimism, though, is people who are optimistic also gamble more. So there's always a little bit of a downside, right? So the optimistic person is really good, but then again, they're also, don't keep them away from the casinos, okay? Um, but, but optimism is not just something internal. Optimism is also fueled by external cues. And I'll give you an example. When, when Fort McMurray had the wildfires a few years ago, I mean, just tremendous devastation. But what was interesting was, and that the ba banks and insurance companies actually set up mechanisms or people on buses to go to the shelters and start getting people to get their claims for their insurance settlements, uh, you know, getting those insurance settlements going, as well as giving them access to cash in that, during that crisis. And what was interesting for me was that it was a very concrete example of how even something like optimism is bred by an external resource coming to help us. So what happened was that people who got their, their uh, uh, insurance claims settled very quickly were able to start rebuilding within just six months of the fires. Not everybody, but many people had the resources to actually start. If you want to give people a sense of belonging, future orientation, a sense of personal efficacy, or what's called that control, these are all things that are foundational to you, you being able to withstand complex stress in your life. What you do is you basically don't send in a psychologist, you send in an insurance representative after a wildfire. And I'm not, I'm not making that, this is actually what happened and this is actually what we now know is the science of resilience, is that we, we, while we're looking to sort of fine tune our thinking and it's good to have a positive attitude or show gratitude, it's also important that we find these supports around us and that becomes the key. Uh, so things like um, making sure also during a crisis like this that you maintain good nutrition, it will change. Literally, we know that what goes inside our guts changes our thinking, our, our ability to withstand things like anxiety and depression. There's, there's definitely connections there between eating well and your ability to withstand um, at a biological level these, uh, dis these mental disorders. Uh, we know that there's uh, your good sleep hygiene 
will also make you stronger and be able to resist anxiety. And that, for most of us adults, that's usually about seven hours a night. For our teenagers, that's more like nine. Younger kids, even more sleep. And it's absolutely remarkable that you watch people who are digitally you know, addicted, right, completely ruining their sleep hygiene and then making themselves weaker when it comes to the stress involved, well, that we're all experiencing. Um, uh, and finally, of course, physical activity, uh, getting out, walking, and if it's inside nature, probably even better. We seem to have a propensity that these external environments, getting outdoors, getting some exercise, actually, again, elevates our mood and makes us able to resist some of the, um, the, the heavier consequences of what is this cumulative effect on our bodies of these kinds of stress. By the way, there's other things that we see consistently in our research on resilience as well. Um, things like structure and routine. Um, this is great for kids, by the way, because of course, you know, you can actually enforce the structure on them. Um, but there's something about us adults too that if I go through and I routinize my day somehow, and then the next day I wake up and I follow the same routine, then generally speaking, what people experience is that life becomes predictable. Um, the, the world around me tells me that if I got through yesterday, I will get through today. Now, it used to be, I used to, at another time, I used to give the example of, uh, of you know, you go to your favorite coffee shop, you pick up your same order, the barista or the, uh, the, the person behind the Tim Hortons counter, you know, practically slides the, you know, the double doubles, whatever it is, right across at you because they know your order. There's that sense of continuity, that life is predictable, sense of community, you're known somewhere. These routines actually trigger really a, a calming in us. So, you know, I often say to people, one of the first things, you know, back in March and April when we started social distancing, working from home, watching businesses close and everything else, probably the biggest change immediately was this break in our routines. And I, and I compared it to people who retire. Retirement is deadly. It kills us off. It calls the herd. Oh my gosh, if you go to retirement and you don't sort of have places to go and meaning in your life and people to connect to and you don't have hobbies and interests to sort of rejuvenate you, then retirement can be a huge amount of stress, wither away your capacity, make you vulnerable. Sorry if I'm being pessimistic here. But the truth is that when a good retirement is one that you people transition to while they're still working. They create new identities, new experiences of control. They explore new parts of their lives. They make new social relationships that will all be substitutes for what they've lost. And in a sense, what I'm saying here today with the pandemic and everything else is we're having to do the same thing. We're having to find the alternatives. Um, my, uh, my, my wife, she, she, she is doing shopping for the neighborhood, especially for some of the more vulnerable people who might be uh, uh, where their immune systems are a little bit weakened, elderly or ever. So she's found that, that part of her routine. Uh, and other neighbors are doing all kinds of other uh, contributions like that too. Um, I guess I'm sort of hinting at things like um, this, this notion of, uh, of supportive relationships are really important. Uh, uh, having a sense of control in our lives. And if I might, even through this pandemic, even as we move away from our offices, a lot of us are going to feel almost this um, existential crisis of identity. Who are we? Are we still that person who's you know employed? Do we we lose? I mean, 
the, the what is it? One of the uh, fashion, sh many of the fashion stores, they're 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 going under because no one's buying the clothing that we used to dress ourselves up in to go to the offices or wherever, right? And and as as silly as that might sound, not 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 for the businesses, but as silly as that, you know, people are that superficial that we're supposed to, well, who cares? But actually, we do. But those clothing that we put on are part of our performance of our identity of who we want to be seen as. And when that gets stripped away, our ability to withstand stress also gets stripped away. We we don't in a sense, know who we are. We don't feel like the community is looking at us so positively. But there are ways around this. Could I, you may, you, I'm sure are aware that we had a mass shooting, 22 people were killed in Nova Scotia, not very far from where I live. And just pr a little bit earlier before that shooting, one of the victims and her two parents, by the way, um, named um, uh, Emily Tuck, who was 17 at the time, she actually participated in a Nova Scotian kitchen party, a COVID-19 kitchen party. And she went online a few weeks before she died and actually recorded herself playing the violin. Now, what's amazing about that is, is that, is that I mean, in a sense, she, she's not the greatest violin player, but she was contributing. She was showing something of herself and contributing to her community with her talent. And I just, in a sense, I want to I wanna honor that, but I also want to show it for a particular reason to help maybe inspire others that we have talents. We know we're more resilient. We cope better with stress when we have opportunities to show who we are. I'm just wondering, um, uh, Annalise, could I have you just play that little bit of, uh, of that, of that um, video? It's. It, I just want to really honor that contribution. I know that then I, I believe when they were honoring all the victims, uh, Natalie like McMaster and other famous uh, artists sort of did a duet with her uh, uh, even after her death. And, and there was something about that moment that brought a tear to many people's eyes as we sort of watched this young woman doing what she had to do to sort of um, just show her talents. And I, and I wanted to sort of make sure that, that we all feel that same permission during this period so that our identity, our sense of control, these themes of making a contribution, of feeling part of something in our communities. If people say to me, how am I going to get through this? How do I, do I have to meditate? Do I just have to sort of constantly be thinking positive thoughts? Well, that helps. But if you combine that with that acknowledgement, almost like asking the world around you to be a mirror and seeking out those opportunities. I'll give you another small example. I mean, uh, one of my neighbors is a is an entrepreneur and has a a, a, a couple of restaurants. Uh, 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 and what we did as a neighborhood is we decided to have a virtual potluck the other day. Uh, we we all ordered at the same time on a Sunday evening from his restaurant to give him a little bit of boost in his uh, his you know his economic whatever. And up and down the street, we all turned on a Zoom connection or whatever we had, whatever Google Hangout, whatever it was. And we all just sort of ate together as a community, even though we're maintaining the social distance. And I'm thinking about that as, one, it wasn't just about sharing a meal virtually. It was also about us feeling connected together. And these initiatives are actually what show up time and time again in the research about what makes us more likely to survive and thrive. 
But if I might, there is a trick to this. And the trick is that what we do has to be meaningful to us. So when Drayton Valley was experimenting with how to help people cope with the economic booms and busts, they had to find the right things that were meaningful to people there, which meant the certain kinds of activities in the community. They started community suppers, for instance. For instance, something that was culturally appropriate for that particular community that all remembered, where people had grown up with church suppers and that type of thing. But it even, it even goes even further. For instance, I'll give you a very fascinating example. There was recently published in the New York Times a, a, um, a, the results of a survey done in late April of Democrats and Republicans in the United States and what they were, how they felt about initiatives like social distancing versus going back to work. And what was very clear, and I'm not trying to be political at all, I'm not doing this for the politics on this, I'm just really fascinated by the fact that people's political voting patterns or their uh, ideological stances dictated which kinds of interventions were most meaningful to them. So the Democrats, those who voted Democrat, seemed to be mostly, by a margin like 70% were saying, you know, social distancing should take priority. And those who had voted Republican were much more likely to say, no, no, we got to get the economy back, we got to get back to work. Now, I'm not trying to say one is better than the other. What I'm trying to say is that if, if we come along and offer something to people, they're, they're, the lens that they view the world is going to filter whether or not they're going to find what we're offering as meaningful. So if we come up to, you know, if we come up to, you know, you're going to have employees or you're, you are an employee or you're going to have family members and you come in and say, okay, I think all of us should start, like, we got to have a, a games night tonight to get through this, right? And they go, like, your teenager just rolls their eye and go, I don't really want to play games with you, dad. No offense, but whatever. It's not a meaningful thing. But if you found something that is more meaningful to that particular individual, maybe it's a sporting activity, maybe it's something outside, maybe it's doing something else, they might accept the offer. And I think the same with us as workers or employers. If our boss is offering us um, you know, a, a way of staying at home and, and everything else, it, 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 it's appreciated as long as we feel like we can still contribute, we're still being economically compensated, and the work can be done in a way that's, that's well, frankly, um, gives us a sense that we're actually good at something that type of thing. Take away all that and people will not experience your offers of help or the environment around them as actually building their resilience. Mm -hmm. I guess what I, ultimately we're, what we're kind of getting at here, of course, is that we're sort of saying to you, you kind of have to be, well, it's a, it's a different, it's, it's, it's like the Cinderella story. Let me, let me bear with me for a minute. Cinderella, we all know the story. Girl raised Abuse, you know, uh, father dies, mother dies, orphan, living with the evil step parents. Poor step parents, they always get a bad rap in these stories, whatever. And somehow or the other, right, uh, she grows up, she's good of heart. Uh, fairy godmother turns pumpkin into golden carrot, she whisks off, meets the prince, marries the prince, and everything's sort of perfect. It's kind of like Meghan Markle, if you kind of think about it, right? Okay, she gets the prince. But that story is always focused on what Cinderella has inside of her, as if somehow just being good of heart gets you the prince. And what we actually know is the whole story is about the fairy godmother. Forget Cinderella. She has almost nothing to do with any of it. You take out the fairy godmother and all you have is an abused kid living in an abusive household who's orphaned, whatever, and she gets fed up. She's a kid like most of the kids I've ever worked with. She's 14, 15, 16. She's tired of being made a child laborer to this evil stepmother. She runs away, of course, tells her mother to 
you can imagine what she tells her mother. Anyways, her stepmother, she runs away. She can't end up in the palace because there is no step, you know, fairy godmother to turn a pumpkin into a golden carriage. And this kid is now sleeping on the street. And her life is very difficult. And what I kind of constantly want to say to employers when I work with them, or indeed to us as family members, we are resilient to the extent that we find our fairy godmothers or we are fairy godmothers to others. We can make our children more resilient. And indeed, employers can make us more resilient. There is a dynamic here. And our, I hate to say it, but our government policies are going to help make us resilient as well through some of this. Um, there are going to be meat inspectors make us resilient as well. I mean, there's all kinds of aspects of things outside of us that make us able to withstand more and more complex stress. And every time I work with a community, whether it's Drayton Valley or some, you know, Summerside PEI or Picto here in Nova Scotia, I clearly see that when we get this community working with individuals to bring out, bring out our best and boldest selves, we are able to withstand all kinds of complex stress and actually do quite well. So this period of change and transition and pandemics, you're not going to be able to do it alone. Find some of those resources you need. Shape the world, or if you listen to my, maybe I just go to the very last slide here. You know, if you want to change the world around you, as, as I've been writing about, then this is the way forward for our resilience, to be both rugged and resourced. Try and find both in your life. And this pandemic, might you may be able to weather it um, without a lot of uh, personal uh, stress and anxiety, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm going to stop there and see if we have some questions or comments and, and maybe I can sort of introduce some other ideas as we go along. And uh, yeah, um, if you can just put up that last slide and, and people will know how to find me if they want to read more about these ideas. Um, and uh, yeah, so please. Excellent. Thank you so much for your um, really informative talk and very, very interesting. We have quite a few questions already lined up, so I'll just jump right in. Um, the first question is Laurie Schultz. It's a two-part question. In your book, Change Your World, you wrote, and here's the quote, when people are treated fairly, everyone wins top to bottom, dot, 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 requiring fewer jails, emergency rooms, and rehab centers, end quote. C19 has clearly amplified systematic cracks for seniors and people of color. Will COVID-19 be pivotal in creating and investing in building cohesive communities that will shift to valuing to the to a valuing of human beings? Well, I Laurie, thanks for the question and I get the sense that there's a little bit of a of um a subtle momentum in that question towards the answer. I mean, it would be nice to see this, wouldn't it? That suddenly we've opened up possibilities that we never thought possible. I was, I, I mean, to be fair, I've been super impressed by things that people said could never be done. Oh, we couldn't have workers all working at home. We couldn't decongest our highways. We couldn't, um, you know, we, we couldn't do things. There was so much stuff that we said we could never do. We could never, uh, you know, weather such a, a thing. And suddenly people were doing it. But it has highlighted the fact that the people who have suffered the most through this, let's be honest, I mean, you know, I know that we've all suffered, many of us have lost money. If you're an entrepreneur, it's been a very difficult time. But the ones who are probably the most affected, of course, have been people who are most vulnerable, both medically vulnerable, but also socially vulnerable as well. Uh, and the statistics don't lie. That's the people who are getting the sickest, 
the people who are suffering the most, the people who are economically the most marginalized, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I do hope that this maybe wakens us a little bit. In my research on resilience, it's very clear. People who are treated fairly, where there's an element of social justice, it's not necessarily mean that they have to be rich or anything like that. The, the more that they have some stability and social justice, the more likely they are to withstand stress. And that's a, that's a fact in the research very clearly. Um, people who are treated fairly do tend to be able to cope with everything from a natural disaster to the death of a loved one. Um, people have lower l- rates of mental disorders when they're actually, uh, for instance, their jobs are actually stable. So when they go to work, they know that they have a permanent job or at least have a fix on a position for a set amount of time. The people, the more you take away those things from people, the worse they become, the worse they behave, and ultimately we all pay the price because that means more jails, more mental health institutions, more hospital beds, and everything else. You fix those problems. Socially just communities generally need a lot less of those systems, which also means we can reinvest money in other things. So it's a very, it's, a, it's just one of those truisms in, in social science. Our next question comes from Knut Peterson. It seems like the stars align perfectly in regards to the huge protests taking place in the US, here and all over the world as a way to connect with others during the COVID-19 pandemic. Your thoughts, please. Yeah. Well, what's been interesting was, can you imagine this pandemic having happened 20 years ago before the proliferation of the internet? I mean, where we didn't have the band. Do you remember dial-up? Somebody out there remembers dial-up, you know? And, and like, I am so impressed that we've managed to, on a really on a global scale, deal with a lot of the stressors because we've a- adapted our technologies. We've made it possible to survive a lot of these struggles. Now, so, so in a sense, we're, we're, we, we know that, um, uh, you know, we are going to get through this because of that. There were other studies, by the way. Nobody's studied the pandemic, right? Let's just be real clear. There's almost no science on pandemics and how society is going to cope with this stuff. But we do know from everything else, from ice storms and power outages, that people get through those things when the infrastructure is outside of them, around them. So, for instance, they show that seniors, during the big power outages in the eastern United States back a dozen years ago, they know that the seniors survived much better when there was a community to check in on people. Um, also, we know that power grids, by the way, this might be interesting, when you develop power grids that are so centralized and hinged on one service, one provider, or one line, they tend to be extremely vulnerable. And now there's a real movement to understand that the best way to make a whole society resilient power-wise is to diversify that the, the, the kind of thing, to make smaller generation plants or to be less reliant on a single source. That sounds kind of off, off from people. But it's not like on, like on us. A family that has multiple sources of income is going to survive a pandemic like what we're being asked to than someone who is solely reliant on a single industry, a single job with only one earner in the family. I mean, you kind of see where your vulnerability comes depending on how you've structured your life. Does that help that kind of offering some ideas here, some of the research? Our next question comes from Tad Mitsui. Please comment on one meditation and two alcohol as coping mechanisms <laughs> at the same time <laughs> oh, that's a great question i've never been asked that um so 
meditation and any sort of contemplative practice, and let's be clear, you don't have to sit in the corner, you know, cross-legged in a, in a position sh- chanting. There's lots of contemplative ways. You could go out and walk your land. You can be in amongst the forest. You can be gardening. You can just be, you know, out in a space of reflection. Anything like that is also a contemplative exercise that grounds you and is going to give you a pause and just kind of clear your head and keep you focused and, in a sense, chase away the extraneous worries that many of them you can't, you know, you seize onto when you say, oh, I should worry about that. Well, go do something. Change, you know, be, get, get some of that mind control, that self-regulation really does help because if you can change the cognitions, it tends to help our, our, our um, uh, stress response system sort of calm. So the whole thing is sort of, we're very much uh, interconnected. So that tends to that tends to be a good practice. But again, if I might, make sure that you also set up the space to do that. So put yourself into, you know, if you don't have any greenery in your house, you know, build a little ledge garden of herbs or do something that allows you to be triggered to be a little more contemplative and calmer. Um, put in your schedule. I will actually take 40 minutes a day or 20 minutes a day to do that. People forget that these external cues actually make them easier. It makes it much easier for us to to be our better selves. Alcohol, if I might. Generally speaking, alcohol is a depressant, so we know that. Um, there's actually, alcohol is known to interrupt your sleep patterns. Your sleep hygiene is worse, even though people think I drunk, drink and I'll fall asleep, but it actually doesn't work like that. People tend to be up more. They don't sleep as regularly when they're uh, when they're steady drinkers. Um, alcohol, it, it kind of, doesn't really help us to be contemplative. There's no real science on that. Um, you know, that notion of the stiff drink, well, it'd probably be better just to go take three deep breaths. I understand that people cope with the alcohol because it's a, it's a, it's a habituated pattern. It might feel like it's helping. But what we also know is it actually does, and it makes you at higher risk, partly because of the sleep interruptions, partly because of the, um, the mood swings and everything else, not to mention the health concerns, there's really no good justification to say that it's going to calm you and make you more impervious to stress. It kind of, truthfully, though people might not believe that, it actually makes you more vulnerable to stress. So if you can find an alternative or keep the drinking in relative check, um, you're probably going to be able to withstand this period of incredible upset for longer periods of time. Um, what can I say? I mean, that's the science behind it. Maybe people are saying, no, a good stiff drink helps. Well, it probably doesn't, but you're probably experiencing that because you have you're not having any other coping mechanisms. If people got rid of all the alcohol, they might find that, and they use these other strategies, and they probably feel that overall their life would elevate um, up. But what can I say? That's what the science says. Um, back to Laurie Schultz for the next question. In Alberta, there are polarizing views with fossil fuel versus green energy. Citizens who see the need for both appear to not be heard, leading to a fracturing of fragile community cohesion that leaves us more vulnerable in crisis. Do you have any advice on or know of any communication mechanism to allow safe dialogue to create or restore social cohesion on these issues? Huh. Oh boy, talking about a minefield to walk into on that <laughs> one, yeah. Um, uh, what we know is that what's happening is our society, every reasonable look at this has said we're becoming more polarized. People are watching only one news source 
there's a fracturing of communication and dialogue for sure. Whereas we used to at least be able to sort of tolerate listening to each other. That's our multimedia universe. People are blaming it on that, but there's just a, 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 a breakdown in terms of how we communicate. I, what I have seen is that people who, when you create common, what I've seen is that if you can create a common space where people can agree on one thing, like a community dinner, you know, everyone can agree that the lasagna is good. People will then sort of, if you can create points of contact where you can agree on something, then people tend to tolerate the, the, um, where they are in discord. What's happened, of course, is that we don't create that common space anymore. So we don't attend the same institutions. We don't share the same activities largely. So what's happened is you, you don't, all you see is polarized. You know, you have one group of people who believe in one thing and they're, they're not really spending any time together. Anything that brings us in closer proximity and I, you know, social activities, spaces that we share, our kids playing the same teams, you see that that stuff tends to break down that polarization. Um, if I could, on the other side of that question is, you know, in terms of diversifying the economies and all this kind of stuff, look, I, whether we like it or not, the, the world is changing. Uh, wh whether it's going to take 10 years or 45 years, that's an open question. The, the world is definitely changing. So basically what we know from studies of resilience is that, that economies, communities that anticipate or diversify or that have multiple sources of, of you know, ways of, of, of surviving tend to withstand stress longer term. And I'll give you an example. Summerside, Prince Edward Island in the 90s lost their military base. The mil one of the, they were the first, one of the first military bases to be closed as surplus in the country. And initially that was, you know, it was, oh my God, everything's bad. A third of the population is going to move. The whole town will collapse. Housing prices drop. Everything is doom and gloom. But what they were actually fortunate enough to be the first, they were actually fortunate to be the base that closed first because what happened was that there was government initiatives and entrepreneurs stepped up both inside the community and outside the community and looked at the, 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 the physical capital, the financial capital, and the social capital, the people that were there and realized that they had a wonderful basis for a more diversified industry and opened an aeronautics park that then became a much, as today employs almost as many people as the military base employed. Now, in a sense, they are still relying on, on a industry, but they're not relying on a single employer for that industry. So that, that kind of strategy where you use your talents, where you become, I mean, let's face it, Alberta is never not gonna be an energy, you're an energy producer, and you're experts in energy. That's what I've learned from my friends in, in Drayton Valley. But what energy looks like or that type of thing, I mean, I think that's where we get into a debate about um, making communities more resilient. Now, I'm trying to sit in the middle of this. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not anti-oil and I'm, I'm not only, I, I think there's advantages across a, a variety of different technologies. But I travel the globe and I know what's going on in China. Often uh, I'm there and, you know, I can say that the world is changing. So for me, I want to anticipate that change as much for my children. What that exactly looks like, although I'm not entirely sure. But I can say when we can have these conversations and find common areas to overlap, say the welfare of our children, then generally speaking, people find um, the next step, Lori, the next step is that usually people will then find some common solutions, uh, more the, you know, and as opposed to the or in the, in the, um, in the way of thinking. Our next question is from Leona Jacobs. 
Perhaps my head was in the clouds, but I don't remember a time when I was younger that there was such a dominant social thread of anxiety, lack of resilience, mental health. What happened along the way in our collective social development that this has become such an issue? Yes, it happened before, but so much? Yeah. There are some theories about it. Your observation, Leona, is actually quite accurate. There there is no denying that we are, as a society, more anxious, more medicated. Uh, our children are certainly showing more uh, pension for anxiety disorders, social isolating, depression. Uh, we are more lonely than ever before. And a large part of that has been, maybe it's just been a cumulative effect of us social, you know, creating small, I mean, it's kind of odd, but actually smaller and smaller families, more and more mobility, um, and at a time when actually we can communicate more through the internet and otherwise, we're actually seeing an increasing number of, of, of isolation as we move into smaller and smaller households. Uh, 28% of Canadians live in, single in a single-person household. Um, and that could be good if you like that. I'm not saying there are many people who do like that. But for many people, that is also a potential uh, challenge. Some people have blamed the social anxiety that's come with that as partly just simply that we're more and more distanced. We, we work in our pods. We don't have places where we connect as much in our communities. We don't have, you know, the same softball leagues and we don't have the same church or, you know, uh, we don't go to our religious institutions very much to, you know, to, to share. Our extended families are more distant. We move away, that type of thing. So even, my gosh, in dormitories in universities, most dormitories now are set up so that students live in individual rooms. They don't actually share a room anymore, these kinds of things. So you, you see a casual breaking down of those kinds of things, and they're having a consequence. And, of course, social media. Unfortunately, that is being blamed somewhat. That constant sense of, you know, swiping, is it swiping left or swiping right? I don't know. Uh, um, you know, and that endless kind of notion of, of being looking for the likes and everything else, I hate to say it, but that there is some evidence that that is wearing on people, they're, that, they're, that they're simply not sleeping well, that they're anxious, that there's too much being judged. And that what's called social comparison is actually at the root of this, is that we're so often in that element of social comparison that it strains us. And we know this, by this has been known for decades. You know, if, if my social comparison is only my neighbors, then I tend to feel relatively fulfilled as long as I can meet their standard of living. If my social comparison is the Kardashians, why anybody would want to be Kardashians, I can't imagine, but nevertheless, if that's your goal, your social comparison now is a global community. And that does wear on people's um, ability to cognitively say, I'm okay, that suddenly it's never quite good enough. So you're, you're getting at something very profound. And, 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 and during this pandemic, of course, um, you know, maybe we're unraveling that a little bit, uh, but we're getting other stressors as well. So. Our next question comes from Bev Mundo. People suffering from mental illness are having a tough time with increased stress and anxiety. Is there a role for therapy? So I began the talk talking a little bit about the, the, the double effect of what happens during a pandemic is you increase the stressors, so you're weighed heavily on this side of the teeter-totter. You had now you know, mental health problems or you know, other exposures. And you take away all the supports that you used to have, all those things that you could do that involved, of course, being with other people and visits and travel and all the other things that maybe energized you. So you kind of have this double, you lose resources and you weigh down on the stressors. And with mental 
uh, when you have a chronic or persistent mental illness, of course, this is going to be a risk factor because suddenly you're not necessarily getting all the fact, all the supports you need that you probably had in place before, even if that was just, you know, you know whatever it was, seeing your doctor regularly or that type of thing. So, yes, I, I, and I do believe there's a, there's a definite um, place for psychotherapy and any kind of group therapy or other kinds of interventions in mental, in, in, to treat mental disorders. There's a lot of very effective therapies, some cognitive, some emotional, some oriented within your family. Uh, uh, they're even now getting social prescribing. Some psychiatrists are using, I don't know if you heard this phrase, psychiatrists are using something called social prescribing. And what the prescription is, that instead of a, another you know, visit to the pharmacist, the prescription is, I want you to go out to a movie with a friend. <laughs> or we're going to set it up so the volunteer takes you out to a movie or something. And the idea is that, that there's a, this, this kind of creating a rich environment, or as my book says, you know, changing the world around people with chronic and persistent mental illnesses so that they have the supports. Much like the Canadian Mental Health Association has done with their clubhouse models for decades. The idea of giving people meaning and connections and supports, et cetera, et cetera. And in the absence of those, or maybe in combination, even better if I, if I could, Bev, in combination with those, psychotherapy and other kinds of more clinical interventions are very, very effective. They're even more effective when you combine them with some of these changes in people's worlds as well. Um, so I, I would try to, I don't do this on your own. There's a lot of good helplines. I know that uh, there's variations on the kids' help phone for kids as adult. Uh, resources as well. Um, reach out for help if you need it, for sure. Um, but also think about some of the natural resources you have already in your world, whether that's a garden or a neighbor that you can go for a walk with on two sides of the street or something. You know, these are these are all possibilities as well. Heather Oxman, as a person without a very fairy godmother, so as a person without a fairy godmother, or much of a network of friends, and a mental health challenge, how can I build my depleted resilience in isolation? You know, that's, that's, that is such a challenging, uh, Heather, uh, because of that, what you just laid out there, is, you know, you're already dealing with the stress of, of perhaps the vulnerability, maybe it's not about, you know, that of, of, a mental, of a mental health challenge, and then you're layering that on with some social isolation, et cetera, et cetera. What I've discovered is, is that there are at least, in, in, when I, in, in Change Your World, what I identified was that there were 12 things that we need outside of ourselves. Um, and if I might, there are things that we can sometimes do. Okay, so you don't have a close relationship with another person. But we can create, in a sense, a powerful identity by doing something that we can show to other people. Like Sometimes people think, I must have a connection with another person. But you don't, actually. If people don't have that, you can at least, if you feel connected to a, a bigger goal. Um, there are people, um, you know, uh, during the face, when we needed face masks, there were people who were relatively socially isolated who became part of a movement sewing face masks. Their, their connection to an individual didn't increase, but their connection to an idea did, as well as their identity as, now I'm a valued and contributing member of my community. When we find those kinds of things, we can actually increase, elevate our mood, feel like our life has meaning. We find it through spirituality. That's another path. But we can also find it through um, physical exercise. I mean, even if you're not isolated, even if you are isolated, you can still you know, elevate your mood 
be more impervious to anxiety by simply by also making sure you have an exercise regime and that can be done even in these times that can be done you can modify your diet if that's possible um, if you can find somebody else online who will reinforce your diet you know it's funny our, our the, one of the biggest determinations of what we eat is actually who we hang out with people always think i'm going to diet i'm going to diet no 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 forget the diets find a group of people who eat the way you want to eat then start eating it was so much easier it's so much easier change the people around you and your eating habits will change as well um so it's a little bit of that cueing us from the external environment so you know think about your diet think about your identity think about what you can control think about your culture think about things that you can share maintain structure and routine in your lives you may be still socially isolated um bev or heather sorry bev i think there's a question heather. Heather, sorry, Heather, you might still be socially isolated, but at least Heather, you, you'd still, you'd be other things that would make you much more uh, stronger uh, through this particular period until you can find some of those relationships or put them back in place. And by the way, professionals are good relationships too. There's nothing wrong with, you know, a lot of us have, you know, during a crisis like that, we'll find a professional in our lives or a support worker or a case aide or somebody who also becomes part of our social network who validates us. There's nothing wrong with showing them our identity, showing them our talents, feeling part of a broader community through those relationships as well. Our next question comes from Leona Jacob. Oh no, sorry, I've done that one already. Laura Schultz. It's been said that a measure of successful, a measure of a successful society is how well it takes care of its most vulnerable. What can we do to strengthen the social contract and social investments to protect the vulnerable? Um, well, I guess what we can do is the social. I, I'm. I guess what we can do is make sure that their stories are told and given some priority in our in our world, uh, which I think is sort of happening now. We're beginning to hear those stories all around us. So I really love it when they. Um, they'll you know on television you'll see a newscasts. They'll be featuring people who have, uh, you know, who are coping with particular challenges. Uh, you know, we're, we're in a sense, we're, we're telling the stories. I, I do think that there's a really big um, need for us to uh, hear people's stories and therefore feel maybe develop a little bit more empathy for what they're experiencing. And, and I do find the stories, are, you need to humanize us. Statistics, generally speaking, do not work. If I might, what I've actually seen is we tend to set, if you can follow this, social policy by an N of one. So when you're, a stat when you're a researcher, you talk about the size of your sample, right? So is your N, your sample size, the number of people in your sample, one or 500 or 5,000 or 10,000 or whatever. And I don't know about you, but I've noticed a trend that while we publish all these statistics, ultimately we trigger our sensitivity when it's an N of one. So we were having a debate in 2015 about whether or not we should take in Syrian refugees as a country. Alan Kurdi, a three-year-old boy, died on the beaches of Turkey and was being held by his father, and a camera caught a picture of that. And did you feel it like I felt it, that the social policy across this country changed? We said that we could not tolerate this as Canadians. Politics aside, we said that this was an intolerable situation, and we did something about it. 43,000 Syrian refugees later, 
by the way, I don't know if you know this, but over 54% of them, 54% of them are children or young people. We basically brought children to this country. Now, I know we can debate lots of things about that. I'm not going to enter that space. I'm going to simply say that there was a policy shift that occurred very quickly because of one photograph or one individual. Tragic story. But I, I'm hoping also that one individual can inspire us also for the positive, right? That it doesn't always have to be a death. It can also be a life. Um, a Nelson Mandela, uh, uh, an inspiring person here in our own country, uh, um, uh, you know, Jane Jacobs and her new urbanism, uh, uh, whoever you want to follow. But there's somebody that, that will inspire us. And I do think that those kinds of things look for those people. And maybe if we can publicize their stories, we will be our better selves as a consequence, reminding us what we, are, what, what we can actually become. Our next question is from Knut Peterson. Being able to deal with stress is arguably relative to people's current situation, i.e. a refugee fighting to stay alive versus people with adequate social safety net are very differently affected by the current pandemic. What role do you think a polit political leader plays in terms of making people feel supported? For example, Trump versus uh, Trudeau. <laughs> <laughs> let, let me let me let me walk a little bit around that and go. I don't I don't think political leaders alone make us resilient. Trump is a phenomenon that re, that was put there because there was a massive there was a long period of neglect or people felt that there was a group that was being very badly neglected by social policies all you know a lot of change has been happening economically and people were felt like they were being left behind and and others bought into an ideology trump is trump is not there alone he's there because the people in the united states have a belief system that put him there right um you know as as that woman famously a few a few weeks ago said you know I have a right to my haircut. I have a right to a haircut. You know, nobody is going to tell me that I can't get a haircut. This whole coronavirus thing is a whole hoax or whatever. I don't believe the scientists, etc., etc. Look, when you start from that premise, that's an ideology. That's what people believe. And that's what put the politicians in power. I think we have to take some responsibility for, in, in, you know, if our politics here in Canada, and let's be honest, our politicians don't have that same span, right? I mean, I know we can debate politics, conservatives, left, right, and everything else, but really, compared to many other countries in the world, our, I travel the world. I, 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 I am a, me and Air Canada, we're friendly like this, or we were, anyways. Um, but, like, if I might, we're, we're relatively close, because I think as Canadians, we are relatively homogeneous in our belief systems. Right? We dicker, and we, we have disagreements, but we, we're not like this. And um, so I, I do think that, that we get those politics based on that. And if I might, our resilience is tied up with our, with our resilience. I am, I am worried if we don't solve some, you know, I am worried what I'm seeing south of the border because I don't think they're, they're, they're setting themselves up for resilience as the economy changes, right? They're actually going backwards instead of forwards, even though there's a lot of money being made, but actually they're, they're, they're not necessarily anticipating the next big change coming. And I hope that in Canada, our, our politicians are going to be a little bit wiser and reflect what people want, which is to anticipate the future and make us more resilient in the future. Um, 
we have a healthier population, we have better health care. Uh, these are decisions that have been made because we believe in a social contract, which makes us all collectively more resilient. If I might just end just one last little note here, which is the whole anti-vaxxer. This is what's going to start happening in the next two or three months. This whole anti-vaxxer is going to uh, movement is going to take hold. And what they're doing essentially is saying, I'm going to break the social contract. I don't need to vaccinate my child or myself because everyone else is going to do it for me. So they're going to go for herd immunity, right? And they only benefit because they don't participate in making everyone healthy. They're going to do it selfishly just for themselves. And it's an unfortunate anti-science kind of idea, but it also reflects an ideology that not only is anti-science, but it's also anti-social, the social contract that keeps us all healthy. Go travel to a country that has polio and you will change your mind about vaccinations because there is there is some real threats here. So anyways, I'm, I'm just saying politics represent people and our decisions are often represent whether or not we hold to a social contract that everyone, we're all in this together. It'll be interesting to see what happens with that. Okay. We're right on 11 o'clock, but we have one more question. Would you entertain it? Sure, sure, for sure. For sure, please. Um, it's by Ian Hurdle. The pandemic is a silver lining to allow populations to see and slow down the daily treadmill to allow us to look around at, at near and far. Is there a way to maintain this new view in community? I, it is interesting. The animal, I live in a, in a sort of in just on the fringes of my city. There's a completely different ecosystem occurring. Uh, there's fewer coyotes and many more bunnies. The raccoon who lives in the tree has become very, very friendly. I mean, there's a whole change based on the fact that we are at home more or dr not driving as much, et cetera, et cetera. It's really interesting to see. Um, will these changes sustain? Could they sustain? It would be nice to believe that some of the more positive aspects of this change will endure, like, say, working from home partially, more flexible work hours, these kinds of things. I'm optimistic, but I'm also realistic. I have a feeling that many of these things are going to go back to how they were and the change is going to be incremental. Some of these very small things will, will remain, but overall we return to how we were. Um, but I think it will have opened doors to possibilities and there will be thought leaders and business leaders who will take these ideas forward and begin that transition and we'll see over the next five to ten years a transition, but I don't think it's going to all magically they're going to open the doors and everyone's going to stay at home working. I don't entirely see that occurring and, and nor do the people I consult with and talk to. I think they're, they're seeing it as, Hey, we can do this, but we're not quite ready to do it all the time yet. So. Thank you so much. Um, we have three people, Heather Oxman, Laurie Schultz, Beth Mundell, all thanking you very much for the hopeful, um, great presentation, so necessarily on a timely topic, and I'm sure everybody else who's listening is really thankful for your presentation. Um, um, do you have any final words before we end the live stream? No, just uh, all the best to everybody there, and uh, please, uh, if you need to read more, check out Change Your World, but also just, it's a huge honor. Um, it's I meet inspiring people all across this country, and uh, all the best to you as you uh, as we all weather this together. Okay, I will end the live stream now.